From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, Jim Hightower returns to give a post-election analysis of where the progressive movement should be regardless of who wins the election. And after that, Bill Blancato joins us to discuss climate change and the path forward. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. As Americans go to the polls to elect the 45th president, many progressives will be left wanting regardless of the outcome. I can think of no one better to discuss this issue than my good friend Jim Hightower. His down-home passion and wit make him the Will Rogers of our day. Jim Hightower, welcome back to the public morality. Great to be with you, Byron, and public morality and all the good folks on WSWC. Thank you. Um, I think it's an understatement to suggest uh, that a lot has happened since we last talked. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> it seems like eons ago, years or something. Or I think the last, well, let's put it this way, Jim. I think the last time we talked, we had a modicum of rationality still remaining in our political system. Just a modicum. Yeah, that, uh, that went away. <laughs> I mean, irony is is no longer uh, possible uh, in, our, in our society. I mean, the, the politics, uh, and it's not just politics, but the, the corporate world, the, the whole swirl of social and cultural uh, activities in, in our country uh, have, have overtaken uh, irony uh, to, to make uh, the absurd real yeah well well, on that note just from from your uh self-described populist lens how would you assess the 2016 presidential election uh well that uh a a freak show basically (laughs) i mean i'm I'm talking about the general election now right we we had a pretty strong one and you know we had bernie and really out there and talking about the kind of things that people really cared about. And uh, and I'll just be honest with you that uh, Trump had a few of those themes uh, as well. It was not the, the prevalent message that he had, obviously, but uh, nonetheless, he was tapping into, into some of that. Uh, but uh, th- then it just, you know, went, went off uh, off the charts. Uh, and, uh, and it didn't really deal. I mean, we just had an election that ignored the really big issues in our country. Let's start with uh, getting money out of corporate money out of politics, the, the corrupting power of corporations to dictate governmental policy by essentially purchasing um, political uh, players. Uh, and Hillary Clinton has, you know, to be honest, has had. Uh, uh, her entire campaign financed by Wall Street and, and corporate elites, uh, the uh, and 
and Trump, for all of his talk about, well, I'm a super rich guy and I'll just finance my own campaign, he was getting millions of dollars from the Sheldon Adelsons and these billionaires uh, uh, for his campaign. So nothing was nothing fundamental is going to change with money in politics, no matter which of those uh, were to get elected. Uh, and then uh, so so much else, you know, the. We're such a big country. We're such a big people. I don't mean just in size. I mean in spirit and possibility. Uh, we, we have such potential in this. We, we're so rich uh, overall. Uh, we are so innovative. Uh, we are uh, enterprising. Uh, we are generally people of goodwill, and et cetera. And yet we, our, our leadership has failed us drastically because they don't enlist that. Uh, into any kind of a national movement that uh, that brings all the people uh, into it to say, yes, we have a national purpose again. Uh, start with something as simple as why don't we just fix and extend uh, the infrastructure of this nation? I mean, it's, it's like you know, our, our roof has come off, uh, the the foundation is is cracked and crumbling, uh, the, the the walls are teetering, and and yet our leaders say, oh well, we we can't, we we don't have the money uh, for that, so the whole house is going to collapse, uh, and, and on us. So uh, until we the people, uh, and and by, I've got a little good news attached to this, we the people take charge from these. Uh, do-nothing and know-nothing uh, uh, politicians uh, of, of which have, whichever party. Uh, and the Republicans are far worse than the Democrats, by the way. Uh, but there's also a Green Party, there's Libertarian, there, there's there, the Working Families Party, there's a lot of possibilities of building out there. And that gets me to the positive thing, which is if you look at the local levels uh, in our country, the cities and uh, a few states uh, here and there, but cities in particular, uh, People are on the move. They're actually solving problems. They're coming together and finding ways to make things work again. And so that's the great hope, and that's what I think is important in 2016 uh, is what we begin to build. It's not November 8th. It's November 9th uh, and forward, uh, and, and not just looking to Washington and how we're going to influence um, Hillary or Trump or Congress, but uh, how we're going to build real grassroots power uh, and, and actually – do the kind of work that's got to be done to make America work again for everyone. Well, you just touched on it. So I, I was going to ask you later, but I'll ask you right now. Have we, I mean the collective we, been guilty of pl- placing perhaps too much emphasis on the general election and not enough on those so-called down-ballot races, state, local, because the closer you get to home, the more influence you actually have in affecting change? Right. Yes, uh, we have. And we, as a progressive movement, certainly have. Um, we, we've been far too focused uh, over the last three or four decades, uh, uh, not on who's going to be our state legislator, or our city council member, or school board member, but on you know who's going to be president. Uh, and that's where uh, that's where the big money within the democratic and progressive movement goes. Uh, that, that's where the uh, the energy uh, and attention goes. Everybody's concerned about that. Well, it's certainly something to be concerned about, as, as we know, but, uh, but you don't get there by starting there. You get there uh, by these local campaigns that, as you uh, say, uh, Byron, uh, uh, we have our best influence there. Door-to-door work 
uh, actually succeeds uh, in local elections uh, and to some degree in state elections, depending on the size of the state. But uh, door-to-door certainly works. And, uh, you know, th- things like that labor-to-neighbor program uh, that, that unions have, have run in various parts of the country where people in a neighborhood who are union members go door-to-door and say, I live right down the street from you and I'm in this and we we're concerned about this, and what about you? What do you think? And you have relationships at, at that level. You can't have relationships at a presidential level uh, in, in terms of winning politics. Uh, but we can build at that grassroots, and that's what really matters. And that's why I'm, I, I, I urge people, you know, there's been, well, certainly in the primary campaign, there's great dissension, oh, well, Bernie or Hillary and I was a strong Bernie person, but, uh, you know, not anti-Hillary for sure. Uh, but I was saying to people uh, of the progressive stripe, you know, go, go with what you feel best about there. But don't lose sight of the fact that we, we have to build this grassroots thing. In the meanwhile, where we're messing with the presidential politics, we have to be uh, organizing, uh, strategizing, uh, harmonizing, mobilizing <laughs> at that local level. Uh, to to build a a, uh, a grassroots farm team, you know, that can win local elections, win then district elections, win then state elections, win national elections. Um, you help me out with the history here, Jim. Um, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with uh, Jim Hightower. Um, I remember if you took a lunch bucket to work, you were a Democrat. And if you worked on Wall Street, you're a Republican. Well, when did that change? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it changed uh, beginning, uh, actually, in the uh, uh, 1980s, late 70s, maybe, early 80s, uh, when uh, a guy named Tony Coelho, he was a member of Congress from out in California in the agribusiness section of California's Democrat. And it wasn't a bad guy on issues, but uh, Tony was kind of a corporate guy uh and he went to the he's a very bright guy and went to the leadership of the party and began to hammer home uh, the thought that by golly's you know republicans getting all that corporate money but i'm telling you we democrats could get corporate money too if we if we just went and asked for it uh and of course corporations were willing to buy both parties and so uh you know i can tell you from my experience here in Texas politics, that you know, if you take a corporate check, written on the back is the corporate agenda. <laughs> so what happened was our party quit, uh, began to get those corporate checks, and as a result, quit uh, putting forth the the little d democratic populist language that makes working stiffs and dirt farmers and consumers and environmentalists and ordinary folks uh, respond to it. And so we quit the grassroots, uh, and so b- corporations had, at, at at differing levels, but still fundamental levels, uh, both political parties, uh, one aggressively working for them, the other passively allowing uh, them to to take more charge over uh, over the the labor market, over the environment, over consumer actions, over our rights, and you know, et cetera. So. Uh, so that that's when it began to happen, and then it has steadily progressed uh, from there, and was going forward this year too, uh, until uh, Bernie Sanders stepped in and just said, you know, this is absurd. <laughs> you know, uh, 
we, we've got to have one party that stands up uh, against Wall Street, against uh, the greed, uh, against the inequality, uh, is just eating our society up. Uh, and because he dared to say that, people responded to it, and they created the Bernie campaign. He didn't create it. He couldn't organize it. No one person can. No one campaign can. But the people jumped in on that, and they saw an opportunity. And you know, Bernie didn't get to the get quite to the nomination, uh, very close, but not quite there. Did an amazing advanced job for the progressive cause, though. And now, through uh, his follow-up organization called Our Revolution, and they're going to be state chapters all across the country of our revolution. Uh, that fight is going to continue and going to advance, building on what we got started this year uh, and beginning next spring, running in uh, these uh, uh, mayoral races and uh, city council and school board and et cetera, local uh, races, building at that grassroots level. So I, I have great optimism for the future based on the people themselves. Have we... Uh, I'm, th- I'm thinking about the, uh, the the Sanders campaign. I'm thinking about um, uh, some of the rhetoric that, that you mentioned um, after the Sanders campaign, sort of where we are and, and perhaps better said where we're not. Have we reached uh, a precipice where maybe the two-party system is failing our democratic republic form of government? Oh, it certainly has. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, we we have reached that. Uh, now it, it may be uh, rebirthing itself, uh, you know. Whether it's Democrat or Republican, I don't know what it would be. But uh, but in 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 because both parties have have been have had their status quo uh, shattered. Uh, obviously, Trump has done that to the uh, Republican Party or Trump supporters. Uh, the same thing with the Bernie supporters within the Democratic Party because what Bernie won. Uh, was the not only the under 30 vote where he got some 70 something percent of that including by the way uh, that that same level of percentage among uh, Latino and African American uh, voters uh, uh, young voters uh, but he also won the under 45 voters and he brought in the disenchanted working class voters who had given up on politics uh, so that's the future of the Democratic Party right there those people now, now, whether that will remain in the Democratic Party, I don't know. And there's, there's actually begins to be a question, and this is kind of far, far out to, to raise this, but I, but I think it's fair. We're public radio, Jim, so you can be far out. Don't, right, don't okay. worry. <laughs> <laughs> We're in Byron Radio. <laughs> but, uh, of whether, whether we need political parties. I mean, these young people, I, I mean, in my experience through the Bernie campaign, is they don't like any party, and, and they don't even want to have their own, you know, structured as a party. They they want, you know, other kind of more free form kind of political organizations. I don't know what that means, uh, but uh, but it's interesting, uh, is is all I'm saying. And uh, and and we showed, you know, Bernie showed you could. He was opposed by the entire Democratic Party establishment. He had no party. Uh, and in fact, he says that uh, about 90% of the people who went to those huge rallies that he was having uh, had never been to a Democratic Party function in their lives and weren't going to go to one. Uh, but they, but they 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 recognized the genuineness of the issues and the principles, uh, the integrity that was being put forth uh, by Bernie, and that's what they responded to, not some party label. Uh, and you know that's uh, that's that's 
pretty pretty heavy stuff there that uh, we need to be pondering. Uh, you know, what do we call ourselves? How do we organize ourselves? And and the Bernie campaign was largely organized uh, through social media by by the people themselves. You know, and I'll, I'll use them as an example, but one of the challenges um, that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has is that uh, they're, they're usually heard loudest in the midst of tragedy, yeah. which and that places everybody sort of in a, in a reactionary posture, and it's more uh, difficult to hear the legitimate, legitimacy of even opposing arguments. So I guess I'm asking you, can a movement in your view be successful without a sustained effort? Uh, well, it's, it's, uh, it's, that's well put, and I'm, I'm thinking about what you just said, because, yes, it is mostly comes forth in 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 tragedy and unfortunately we seem to have you know tragic moments every week right now uh in our uh country i i've got to where i i can just almost not stand to read the articles anymore you know because it's the same it's the same thing uh but we we have to rise above the tragedy to to find the connection uh in in our lives uh and I say all lives, not to right, diminish right. Black Lives Matters, uh, because that is significant and powerful in, in its in its own right. Uh, but you know, us old white guys have got to find ways to reach out uh, to that uh, hugely diverse, uh, dynamic uh, community that is America today, and certainly America tomorrow. Uh, that's uh, you know. Latino, it's it's Asian, it's African American, it's you know it's everything. The, the Houston school district, I understand, now is, has sixty seven languages spoken in it. In the school district? Yeah. Wow. Houston, Texas. You know, uh, so I mean, they're, they, these are huge changes, and, and they're and most importantly, they're cultural and social changes, and and that is what changes politics. Uh, it's politics doesn't change culture. Um, it's, it's the reverse uh, of that. Uh, the, 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 when the culture shifts, uh, as you know, I experienced in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, uh, then suddenly, you know, what was impossible became possible, uh, and that same thing's happening today with uh, gay lesbians, with uh, uh, immigrants, uh, you know, and, and et cetera. And I think it's also happening uh, economically in, in the class struggle. I mean, we we now, thanks to Occupy Wall Street, which dynamited that stupid block. Uh, blockage that said, uh, "Oh, we don't have class in America," you know, and everybody knows. Well, actually, we do have class in America. You know, there's there's that one over there and this one here that I live in. So, uh, so w- once we realize that and begin to relate to each other, and that's the key, Byron, uh, from my experience. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in totally segregated schools uh, here in Texas, uh, all the way through high school, um, and then went to to North Texas University, University of North Texas, uh, which was the first college to integrate in Texas, did it in 1954, right after the Brown versus Board decision, uh, and and then so I, I sat next to black kids from my hometown, you know, whom I've never known. But once you know somebody, then you know the lies that you've been told uh, by the society, uh, by the culture, uh, and then those lies. Uh, change the culture uh, because they're lies uh, 
and, and you see through it. So I think that's what we've got to have more of to go to your point of, uh, of we, we just seem to relate in times of tragedy and then we're sort of hollering at each other or talking across each other. Uh, rather that in, that in times of, uh, of relative calm, uh, making sure that we're getting together in in social settings, by the way, you know, not not just in you know having meetings, mm-hmm. but uh, you know hanging out together uh, in cafes and coffee shops and bars and taverns and churches and whatever, uh, every way that we can, so so we know each other. If if you know somebody or a group of people, then it's impossible to stereotype them. Right. Right. Uh, let me ask you this. I was thinking about the, you know, the the, the work that you say um, is, is ongoing as a result of the Sanders campaign. Um, you know, one of my observations uh, from the uh, Obama presidency was that it was a feeling that once he was in office, there were a lot of people who were excited about his uh, candidacy, but then there was this assumption that he would organically do the right thing. And so that type of effort, that type of movement... Uh, was not there. I, I guess I'm assuming from the work that you're talking about on the heels of the Sanders campaign, that will be a very different scenario regardless to who's president. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, because re- regardless of uh, uh, Trump or uh, or Clinton, uh, that's not our presidency. Uh, I, I think obviously with Clinton, we're going to get a whole lot more coming our way as, as she adjusted uh, for the Democratic Party platform. Uh, and and in her campaign, actually stuck with most of those uh, provisions uh, in her campaign. Uh, but still, you know, they, she's she's the past. I mean, not to, not to make that as negative as it sounds, but uh, but that's that's yesterday. Tomorrow is going to be something much different, and and I, and I hope better and bigger and bolder. Uh, but that is dependent on us. Doing something and not sitting back and waiting on something to happen, and that is what happened with the. Uh, well, two things happened with the Obama uh, presidency. One, he had put together a very strong grassroots, uh, social media-led, a lot of young people, excitement, uh, vision, uh, kind of a kind of a campaign, and said, "Once I'm in, you know, I'm going to bring you inside." And then he went inside and shut the door, and that was it. <laughs> you know, we, we were we were. Ne- we were not invited back in. You know, you'd get the occasional email from the Democratic Party or something saying, uh, write to your congressman, you know, <laughs> which is very useful. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, in, instead of really bringing the outside in. Uh, and and Bernie was committed to that from the start they, they, because he did not think he would get anywhere near as far as he got in this presidential race, nor did I think he would. Uh, but it happened. Uh, the, the spark was ignited, and off we went. Uh, and and, uh, and now, and but he was very clear that I I can't do even if I am a president of the United States, I cannot do this. You have to do it, and I and but I will open the door and bring you inside. Uh, and he's had a lifetime of commitment to actually doing that, so it, it was not an, another empty gesture uh, on his part. Uh, and so. All right, so he's not inside, uh, and we're not either, but we're much better organized uh, and have a much brighter potential to get organized uh, and to uh, and to develop this grassroots power that is an independent 
political force that is overtly uh, against the the plutocracy that corporate America is uh, is erecting uh, around themselves uh, and shutting all of us uh, out. And so, building that is what uh, Bernie's group called Our Revolution. You can go to ourrevolution.org. Uh, and there it is, and we're going to have, you know, we're organizing here in Texas. I was talking to uh, people in Wisconsin uh, yesterday. Uh, they're they're going strong. Uh, Connecticut's uh, on the move. Uh, uh, Iowa is well advanced uh, in in this uh, because they've been doing a lot of. They've got great grassroots groups uh, over there uh, that are doing stuff together. Uh, and and what we're seeing, Byron, in uh, at uh, Cannonball, North Dakota, with the uh, Lakota Sioux mm-hmm. rebellion against the pipeline. I mean, that, that's that's a profound movement, uh, you know, that just seemed to come out of nowhere. Except it came out of corporate greed. You know, this this goofball who's who heads this uh, pipeline consortium out of Dallas. Uh, uh, he's you know got four billion dollars in personal wealth and and just thinks he can just strut over people, including running through their cemeteries. Uh, you know, I mean, he's getting a comeuppance uh, here, I think. Uh, and I, I don't think those Native Americans, you got 500 Native, who knew there were 500 Native American tribes until this came up, you know. Uh, and and they're together. And, then, and that has allowed environmentalists, particularly climate change people, to come in uh, on that, and, uh, and human rights uh, people, and uh, uh, advocates for women and you know et cetera to to come farmers also who are being run over by this pipeline coming together in a way that we haven't seen in a in a long long time uh so so that again uh that gives me uh hope uh based on just ordinary folks not on any politician well i i think i speak for some of my listeners if you could be hopeful uh in times like this then you are indeed uh as the book of zechariah says a prisoner of hope jim hightower i want to thank you for, for being on the pope <laughs> yeah you're still in the fight thank you for being on the public rally today sir great to be with you bye-bye that was jim hightower coming up i discuss climate change with bill blancato of citizens climate change lobby For most Americans, the issue of climate change has moved well beyond the recalcitrant politicians and pseudoscientists who dismiss it as non-existent. By a large majority, Americans believe climate change is real. Now that there's large agreement that the Earth is indeed at risk, we find ourselves reminiscent of the closing scene in the movie The Candidate, asking, what do we do now? My next guest, Bill Blancato, believes he and his organization that he represents have an answer for Congress to consider. Blancato is a regional coordinator for the Mid-South Region for Climate Change Lobby. CCL is a nonpartisan grassroots organization that is lobbying Congress to enact a revenue-neutral carbon tax. That was Jim Hightower. Coming up. I discuss climate change with Bill Blancato of Citizens Climate Change Lobby. For most Americans, the issue of climate change has moved well beyond the recalcitrant politicians and pseudoscientists who dismiss it as non-existent. By a large majority, Americans believe climate change is real. 
Now that there's large agreement that the Earth is indeed at risk, we find ourselves reminiscent of the closing scene in the movie The Candidate, asking, what do we do now? My next guest, Bill Blancato, believes he and his organization that he represents have an answer for Congress to consider. Blancato is a regional coordinator for the Mid-South Region for Climate Change Lobby. CCL is a nonpartisan grassroots organization that is lobbying Congress to enact a revenue-neutral carbon tax. Bill Blancato, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's begin with you providing a, a condensed version of uh, Citizens Climate Change Lobby. And uh, would you also discuss the efforts to lobby Congress to uh, enact the revenue-neutral carbon tax as well in, in your introduction? Well, Citizens Climate Lobby was founded in 2007 by Marshall Saunders in California. Um, he had been going around doing the presentations that he'd learned about from Al Gore, and he was at uh, a senior citizen center, and some woman in the back raised her hand and said, well, this is all great, but what are you doing about it? And he kind of stammered, and she said, well, I think you need to go talk to Congress. And he decided to put together this program organization which is a grassroots, nonpartisan national effort to lobby Congress to deal with climate change. And it's based on a group called Results, which was founded by Sam Daly Harris many years ago, which has successfully lobbied Congress on hunger and poverty issues. And the methodology is pretty simple. Go talk to Congress people as people. Uh, thank them for their service. Talk to them politely, respectfully and become a trusted resource on the issue. And over the years, we've grown to, I don't know, haven't seen the last figures, maybe 50,000 members around the country, and uh, also have developed the plan, the Revenue Neutral Carbon Tax, uh, which we believe is the most economically sound and effective way to deal with the problem, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Well, what exactly is that? The Revenue Neutral Carbon Tax? Yes. We actually call it carbon fee and dividend. <clears throat> we put a price on fossil fuels at the point where they're extracted. For example, with oil, you would charge a fee at the well, with coal at the mine, for imported fuels at the port where they en enter the country and enter the economy. So basically where the fuel is entering the economy, you put a fee on it based on how much CO2 would be emitted upon combustion. And it's a one-time charge. We begin at $15 per metric ton of CO2 that would be emitted and increase at $10 per ton every year until CO2 emissions are at 10% of 1990 levels. And you take all the money, instead of using it to grow government or reduce the debt, uh, you, you refund it to the people on a per capita basis. The plan is to do it one share per adult, half a share per child, up to two children per household. And by doing that, you actually spur economic growth. Um, you help low and middle income people who may see their prices go up, uh, and you spur economic growth. And pro projections are that uh, we'll reduce greenhouse gas emissions by about a third in 10 years and about 50% in 20, which is faster than would be reduced under the Clean Power Plan, which President Obama proposed, I guess, about two years ago now, and is tied up in the courts. Another important feature of our plan is the border adjustment. We'll often get asked, well, what about China? What about India? You know, if we do something and they don't do anything, our manufacturers will be hurt, our economy will be hurt. 
Well, the border adjustment is part of our proposal, and under that provision, if a country imports goods to the United States and doesn't put a similar price on carbon, well, we hit them with a, a tax at the border, essentially a tariff. Um, and that will cause them to either, you know, it will protect our manufacturers, but the thinking is we'll never do that because China and India need access to our market. We're still the largest market in the world, and we can use our market power to inject the price on carbon into the world economy, which is most likely what would happen. And, you know, it's a way for us to bring them along in, in a pretty simple way. Now, uh, listening to you give that description, I, I would imagine that we have some listeners um, saying, okay, okay, Bill, that sounds great, but sort of walk me through how this, A, creates jobs and, and how uh, this tax is ultimately beneficial not only to uh, the climate change but also uh, for the economy. You, you just, so sort of walk us through that. Like we absolutely pretend we know nothing, which most of us don't. <laughs> Uh, well, the primary way it helps the economy is for about two-thirds of families, individuals, they get more money back through the dividend than they'll see their prices go up. And you're increasing disposable income in the lower two-thirds of the income distribution, and those people tend to spend the money versus save it. Also, at the higher levels of the income distribution, those folks who may get back less than the dividend they'll see, than they'll see their uh, prices go up, it's nominal. The vast majority of people in that income range, they'll see maybe a 0.2% decrease in their income. And for a family with a $100,000 income, that's only $200 a year. Um, whereas at the lower uh, levels of the income distribution, say, you know, people in the poverty level or two times the poverty level, this is the kind of money will increase their household income by 10 to 20 percent. As an example, I don't know if that's the exact number, but something of that magnitude. And those people will tend to spend the money. And we'll see upticks in retail, health care, um, and, and some other sectors of the economy. Of course, there will be some growth in renewable energy, but that's not where the big growth comes from. Mm-hmm. And the uh, so is the, so is, does the tax uh, on the uh, business side work as a deterrent to 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 lower uh, the emissions? I mean, how does that how does that piece work? Th- think of it this way: um, most most or a significant portion of our greenhouse gas emissions come from generating electricity. You're Duke Energy; you need to buy fuel to generate electricity. They rely on coal to a large extent. All of a sudden, they realize that coal is going to get more expensive. And it's not going to get expensive overnight. One feature of our plan is that it, the price increases are relatively modest and go on year after year after year. So businesses can plan. If you're planning a new energy production facility 10 years down the line, you now know that coal is going to be more expensive then than it is now. And, and if Duke's looking to... That would be Duke Energy. Duke Energy, not Duke University, although they have power generation issues there too. But if they're looking at building a new facility, they now know that coal is going to get more expensive. All of a sudden the renewables become more competitive with coal. And so they're going to want to move away from coal as their fuel source to something that's more economical, hopefully renewables. 
And you'll see that in other businesses that um, generate power or use fossil fuels in, in their uh, production process or transportation process. I think you'll also see one problem with the renewable energy industry as compared to fossil fuels. It's illustrated by what's happening with gas prices the past couple of years. You know, while we'll recall a year and a half, two years ago, gas was about three fifty a gallon. Now it's just over two dollars a gallon. Well, if a renewable energy uh, company wants to compete against fossil fuels and they're depending on, say, gas to be three dollars a gallon, if it suddenly drops to two, the renewable energy industry is going to be at a competitive disadvantage. But now, with a steady rising fee on fossil fuels, there's a floor below which the price of fossil fuels won't go, and renewable energy industries can count on that, and I think you'll start seeing money flowing into investment in renewable energy and other alternatives to fossil fuels. Um, since we're taping uh, this show uh, prior to the presidential election, I, I would imagine that there is an assumption that you would need, at the very least, a Democratic Senate, if not uh, a Democratic Senate and House, and you would need uh, Hillary, or Hillary Clinton presidency uh, to move this agenda forward. How do you see that? Uh, we don't see it that way. Um, ours is a nonpartisan approach, and we let's, – let's, let's assume for the sake of discussion that the House and the Senate go slightly Democratic. There's still going to be significant Republican minorities. In the Senate, they could filibuster. In the House – who knows what, what kind of roadblocks they put up. I mean, you still have, In the House, you still have some recalcitrant members. We do. <laughs> and, and so this is too important to have it be a partisan issue. And we want it to be enacted and be accepted by the public and not have it be sort of like the Affordable Care Act has been. I'm not here to defend the Affordable Care Act, but you know, Republicans have been shooting at it since it was enacted, and it got enacted without any Democratic support. It's become a wedge issue. This is too important to be a wedge issue, and our plan is to continue lobbying Republicans, whether they have the majority or a minority. We want Republican support, and we want to get Republican sponsors on our plan. Whether they have the majority or the minority, it's important that this be a bipartisan solution. Um, I can already hear pushback in that CCL is, is championing an idea uh, for those who are right of center, um, I think the polls are real clear that there's a huge distrust uh, in government. And then if, in operating on stereotypes, and now you want to tax your way uh, to, a, to a solution. How do you respond to that? Well, one reason we use the word fee is, of course, tax is, uh, taxes are viewed unfavorably with certain segments of the Congress. But I think the person who said it best was former Secretary of State George Shultz, who was a Secretary of State for Ronald Reagan, Secretary of the Treasury for President Nixon, used to be chair of the Economics Department at the University of Chicago, which is a renowned economics department. He said, if the government doesn't keep the money, it's not a tax. Um, this money will not be used to grow government. It will go back to households, um, call it what you will, but it's, it's designed to benefit the economy, benefit households, and 
start reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. You know, why is it? Uh, I saw a recent uh, Vanity Fair poll. 62% uh, believe that climate change is a critical issue. Uh, 10% uh, says it's not real, and then 26% say they don't know. But yet, it, to me at least, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like the 10% are still driving this issue. How is that? I guess you need to ask the <laughs> politicians that accept that. Uh, I, I think they, I don't think they are driving the issue, frankly, anymore. Um, you know, we're taping this in North Carolina. Um, and Senator Richard Burr, who's our senior senator, he came out publicly a few weeks ago reporting in the Winston-Salem Journal that he believes climate change is real and humans are contributing to it. When we lobby on Capitol Hill, we get very, very little, almost no pushback on the science. Most Republican office holders realize it's a problem. Um, some of them have never thought about the solution. I think that's part of the problem with this, too. So many people just assume the only way to solve it is through massive government regulation. Our program is not based on massive government re regulation. It's based on correcting a flaw in the market and then letting market go to work to solve the problem. And our philosophy is all energy sources should bear their true cost, and right now fossil fuels are not. Once you have them bear their true cost, then we'll have the best energy source come forward. And, and, and not just energy source, you know, efficiencies, there's plenty of efficiencies to be gained out there as well. And, you know, it may not make sense to invest money in developing a more efficient electric motor, for example, if electricity is so cheap. But once the price of electricity may go up or uh, coal, what have you, all of a sudden efficiencies start to become more economically feasible. Mm. You know, in this debate, uh, in some respects, I, I, I feel that um, it's almost two different conversations in that you're lobbying uh, for the long-term uh, ecological welfare of the planet. And then while many uh, look at this issue in the short term, you want to take away my job. How do you find common ground in those, in those two assumptions? Or are those even the correct assumptions? I'm sure you've heard that argument, though. Well... We're not taking jobs away. In fact, uh, an independent economic analysis of the pr proposal found that within 10 years, if adopted, CCL's proposal would create 2.1 million jobs and in 20 years, 2.8 million jobs in the economy. You know, there will be some sectors of the economy that start to shrink, coal and oil. Um, and we need to remember that those folks are going to need help in the transition. There are some bills that are being discussed. Uh, I think it's called the Reclaim Act, uh, which even dates back to the Carter administration. Um, there are funds available to help coal miners transition. Um, the oil industry will decline more slowly. Um, and I don't know, it could be that just attrition, normal retirements, that kind of thing. Uh, but there's also going to be growth in other sectors of the economy. And, you know, we have a dynamic economy. It's always changing. I challenge you to go out today and find a blockbuster store. <laughs> they used to be all over the place, and you can't find one anymore. So, yeah, there's going to be changes in the economy. But, of course, what's the downside of not acting? Uh, you know, right now 
Miami Beach, Florida has sunny day flooding because of sea level rise. You know, sunny days, the high tide comes up, seeps through the limestone below town, comes out through storm sewers and floods downtown. Norfolk, Virginia, Charleston, South Carolina have uh, significantly more normal tidal flooding now than they did 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, we've just set this summer had July and August as the tide for the hottest months since record keeping began. You know, what, what are the alternatives? And people who are against acting are often fearful that the government's going to take over their lives, but what do you do if we don't act? Who's going to move people when there's flooding? You know, who's going to, even now in East North Carolina, you know, FEMA had to go in and help people with that severe flooding. So, you know, if you really want to see the government take over your life, do nothing and then see what happens because only the United States government has resources to help. Well, see, that, that really is the crux, is it? I mean, you're, I mean, you're trying to uh, uh, change the public discourse. Um, and in the prerequisites for, pre for change, in my view, is discomfort. Um, and discomfort creates fear, and fear creates stagnation. I mean, that's sort of the – is that part of your challenge, CCL? Fear creates stagnation, I think. That we do nothing. Well – you know, our, our founding fathers designed Congress to be very deliberative and slow, and there is a certain lethargy in getting Congress to move. Um, but we're seeing signs of movement. Um, in the past year or so, we've seen more and more Republicans come out publicly about the need to act on climate change, and I think most significantly we've seen the establishment of the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus in the House, which was started by two representatives in South Florida, uh, Carlos Grabello, a Republican, and Ted Deutsch, a Democrat, and they were strongly lobbied by CCL members in that area to do this, and they, uh, they haven't adopted CCL's plan. The purpose of the caucus is to study solutions for the problem. Um, and they have a really cool rule that uh, any member of Congress who wants to join their caucus, uh, if it's a Republican, they need to find a Democrat, and if a Democrat needs to find a Republican, they will admit members only in pairs. And they're up to 20 members right now. We expect more folks to join after the election. And there's a perception, I don't know if it's, if it's um, legitimate or not, that, um, that climate change for some reflects an issue of the privilege. And that um, uh, it doesn't it doesn't reflect or include uh, low income communities. And, and and while this is not a climate change issue per se, I think of, I think of Flint water and how Flint you know how, how the water in Flint and the people of Flint were uh, obviously abused in that situation. Uh, any thoughts how CCL um, or does CCL? Uh, actually involve low-income communities in this, grassroot, in this grassroots effort? We would like to, um, but I think in so many areas of life, you know, this takes time and money to actually go lobby Congress. I'll be going to D.C. next weekend to lobby again. I'm going to take time off from work. I'm going to have a hotel bill, gas money to go to D.C. You know, low-income people don't have the time or the money to to go do some of these things. On the other hand, low-income people can write to members of Congress, can write letters to the editor of their local papers, um, can go to meetings, um, 
and we would love to have more folks engaged. I have no idea as a percentage of our membership how, how many CCL folks are high income versus low income. Um, but we, we, we welcome anybody. And, and is, you know, I think low-income people, as in so many things that happen in life, they're going to bear the brunt probably of climate change. Um, they live in more flood-prone areas. They don't have, you know, maybe as good air conditioning systems in their houses or don't have air conditioning. Uh, the, the, the disruptions in the economy always hit them worse. And that's just the United States. I mean, look, this is a global problem. This is not a United States problem. And if you want to hear about what may happen globally, you can listen to the military. And they firmly believe climate change is a problem. They call it a threat multiplier. They've classified it as an immediate threat to national security. Think about a country like Bangladesh, where there are so many people living in low-lying areas on the coast what happens with sea level rise there and then the millions of people will be displaced and unfortunately the military our military views that they're going to have to go in and help solve that problem so you know it's not just an american low income problem it's a global low income problem you know you were talking i was thinking back um to uh, 1963 uh before the police dogs and fire hoses had a gallop pool where about 4% thought civil rights was a national issue. Um, once they saw the police dogs and fire hoses on television overnight, that number jumped to 52%. Uh, seems to me the problem with, with climate change, we can't wait until it shows up on television that it's, absol that it's absolutely a problem. That's too late to address it. So so you're trying to move move the ball before we have this empirical data that says it's too late. Isn't that the challenge? It, it is a challenge, and, you know, we, we – exactly. If When Miami's underwater, it's too late. Uh, and there may already be forces set in motion right now that some coastal cities are going to have to uh, build seawalls or relocate. Uh, but I don't think that's an excuse to do nothing. And, you know, we talk about sea level rise because that's sort of the most visible – problem that we have right now coming out of climate change uh, but I, I was in New Orleans a couple weeks ago and I just walking down the street I heard some guy say to another guy yeah it didn't get cold enough last winter kill the mosquitoes well what happens if you have a few years of mosquitoes living all year round I, I don't know what that does to the habitability of a place or the possibility of spreading disease so we, we don't know what's going to happen in the interior of the country necessarily but you know, there are projections that it could get too hot for construction workers to work, it could get too hot for agricultural workers to work, and, and, you know, we all depend on the environment and nature for food, and what happens if some pest survives that otherwise wouldn't because of climate change? I, I, I don't know, but uh, is it a risk we want to take? And in part, what we're talking about here is, is managing risk and dealing with the risk, recognize the risk, and act on it. Um, the insurance company sees it. They were all paying for it through somewhat increased premiums in the insurance industry because they view climate change as a problem. Bill Blancato, thank you for being on the Public Morality Day. Thank you for having me. That was Bill Blancato. Coming up, my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. It has been years 
well, frankly, decades, since I stayed up to watch Saturday Night Live. But because of 21st century technology, one not need make such sacrifices. Thanks to Facebook and YouTube, I was privy to watch the recent Saturday Night Live skit, Black Jeopardy. If for some reason you were not part of the roughly 12 million and counting who have viewed it on YouTube, it is, in my view, destined to be one of SNL's seminal skits. It was pure genius in its use of comedy to touch a core of America's often ignored reality. Black Jeopardy begins with racial stereotypes, with topics that include, I'm going to pray on this, you better, they out here saying, and white people. The black contestants are named Keely and Shanice. The final contestant, Doug, played by Tom Hanks, at first glance appears to be in the wrong place. In addition to being white, Doug is wearing a denim jacket, a white T-shirt with an American flag and an eagle, and a red cap that reads the slogan popularized by Donald Trump, Make America Great Again. The astonished host, Darnell Hayes, asks, Doug, are you sure you're ready to play Black Jeopardy? Undaunted, Doug responds, they told me a fella could win some money, so let's win me some money. Get her done. During the game, Doug more than holds his own, garnering respect and admiration from the other contestants and hosts. They were surprised to discover that underneath their stereotypes was a measure of commonality. Black Jeopardy, utilizing the subversive power of comedy, reveals an uncomfortable truth. Marginalization is colorblind. We can debate the varying degrees, but the feeling of being disempowered cuts across multiple sectors of society. Yet, invariably, it is those who dwell in similar social and economic conditions, separated largely by the percentage of melanin in their skin, who stare across each other with an untrusting glare, helplessly languishing in the quicksand of cross-purpose. Black Jeopardy demonstrates what can happen when people who may differ based on external criteria can find common ground when placed in the same room, which puts us on the path toward that more perfect union.